This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. It is May the 27th. My name is John Dunn, and I just flew on a plane. That's my first travel since February of 2020. Once I was fully vaccinated, buddy, I was online booking that trip to go see my family to try to get back to normal, right? So as we all return to business as usual, we should really, though, be asking ourselves, should it be back to the usual? It's very likely you had to change the way your shelter organization operated over the last year. If you have a facility, you had to dramatically shift your operations, right? You had to close to the public. You may have had to change the way you do events, taking your biggest fundraiser of the year virtual. One of my favorites was seeing curbside adoptions. How creative is that? So some things will need to get back to what it was before COVID-19 was added to the dictionary, but that's not true for everything. Managed intake may be one of those shifts that happened in your community. Managed intake simply means controlling the hours when a shelter accepts animals from the public. It allows time for a conversation before a pet owner gets to the shelter with their pet. That conversation that happens before the pet is dropped off, it's an opportunity to counsel pet owners to understand why they came to that decision. A chance to offer resources that will allow for the pet to stay in the home. Respecting the human-animal bond, as we know, is incredibly important, and it also means fewer animals coming in that don't need to be in the shelter. Hopefully, we can all agree that surrender should be seen as a last resort. So with the pandemic and the shutdowns, managed intake or some version of it was something a lot of communities kind of had to do. But it doesn't need to be temporary. It's been proven over and over just how key it can be in the effort to save lives, so keeping it is a really good idea. But following best practices is key to the success of everything we do. So how do we implement a managed intake program the right way? Today, we're sharing a Best Friends Network town hall that was centered on managed intake. This was a video town hall, as they always are. We'll have the full video version up on the podcast website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. All of the resources and information you're going to hear about also on this page for the episode, bestfriends.org slash podcast. You'll see a link to episode 65. The moderator for this town hall, the Senior Director of Regional Programs for Best Friends, McKenna Yarbrough. So let's get in this and introduce our wonderful panelists. First is Michelle Dawson. Michelle Dawson is the Bureau Manager of the Norfolk Animal Care and Adoption Center. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Next up is Jill Mollahan. Jill is the Associate Director of the Lynchburg Humane Society. Hello, Jill. Hello. And I have to tell everyone, these are two of my most favorite people on the whole planet. So I'm so happy they're here. <laughs> so I'm going to actually start with Michelle. Um, so Michelle, when did you start in Norfolk? Uh, I started almost a year ago. So in the middle of February, well, end of February will be one year. One year. Okay. And so Norfolk, the agency that you are running is a municipal shelter, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Tell us about when you started this manage intake program. And do you call it managed intake or do you call it something else? Uh, we actually call it coordinated entry. We did some thinking, and this is actually a, a shout out to 
a good friend of mine who runs joint animal services, Sarah Hawk. She calls it a uh, coordinated entry because it makes a bigger connection between human support services. And the one thing that I keep telling my team is, that, you know, we've got to remember the connection between human and animal services. So since it was a new program altogether, we just went with coordinated entry. I and like can, it. Yeah, I, I like it too. I mean, I like it. I like all the, whatever you, whatever you call it, just do the thing, right? <laughs> and we, we started formally about, we just finished up six months, actually. Um, so it's been a very short tenure. Started, we started tracking data in, from June to December. We've got all that. It's new. Well, so tell me, obviously, you didn't just jump right into the program. Well, maybe you did because some do, and that's nothing wrong with that. But I want to hear how you set this up. Like I, you went through some real uh, important steps that I think some organizations may not think of. So talk us through exactly how you set it up. Uh, well, yeah, we, we talked and talked and talked, uh, lots of conversations, uh, both internal and external, lots of trainings. And well, first we started the conversation with staff and I got their feedback and how they were feeling about it. And we talked, I talked to make sure to include our city officials and our communications departments. And the whole time I was explaining like what we wanted to do why we wanted to do it and like how we were going to do it. Right. So it wasn't just like, Hey, we're doing this, get used to it. It was a lot of explaining and getting people's buy-in and making sure that the people and uh, departments who are put in place to support us, like our communications uh, could support us in the right way. They were fully informed if they needed to, you do some, you know, damage control. So if we had some bad press or whatever, they knew exactly what we were, we were doing and why we were doing it with staff. We had a, a lot of experts come in and speak. Actually, McKenna, you were one of them. Thank you. Uh, lots of trainings, lots of resources, lots of uh, networking with other organizations. You'll you'll see me on the Facebook groups, <laughs> trolling for resources all the time because I know uh, we can we can create something cool. But why recreate it if there are organizations out there who could help us? What else did we do? We did. We knew that we couldn't implement some any kind of coordinated entry uh, without appropriate resources to support the program, right? A lot of the critics of the programs would be, you're just kind of turning animals away with nothing, but we made sure to build a uh, Hampton Roads pet resource guide. And of course, writing down our protocol because I wanted something uh, easy to read and easy to digest that everybody could, uh, internal and external could just read and see what we were doing, how to do it and why we were doing it. You know, an important thing that I did not mention is that we be, we made ourselves uh, more available than usual, just at any point in time to our uh, neighboring jurisdictions. You know, we're seven cities that are really close together. There's just run on from city to city, 12 brick and mortar shelters. And we didn't want our colleagues in other jurisdictions to feel like we were impacting their work and making their work harder or turning animals away that they would somehow end up at their facilities and we opened that line of communication hey at any point in time if you have questions please ask and if you end up with any of our animals all you have to do is pick up the phone and call me text me we will go ahead and make it right we'll go ahead and bring that animal into our facility and that has happened a couple of times and I mean things are going to happen right you can provide resources and you can you can talk to people Um, But people are going to do what people are going to do as far as like going to another facility and maybe telling them, hey, they turned me away. It's almost always not the case because we don't turn people away. But 
we've built up trust with our jurisdictions where they know, hey, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's just give them a call and see what actually happened. And they know that we'll take the animal back if it does end up there. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that's an important step. Um, and it's funny, I used to tell people, I used to tell staff all the time, just because someone says it doesn't make it true. You know, they'll say things right. to get an emotional rise, right? create an environment to make you reactive. So right. that's great. I think that's important to have those um, relationships. Um, so we're flipping through the guide now. Yes, the guide will be available. Um, it's available right now online if you ever want to go out and take a look at it. Uh, and then right. it's not just around this coordinated entry. It's also obviously how to find your lost pets or if you find one, what you do, what can you do? So it's a really great tool for engaging the community, not right. just around this. Yeah, it's great. It's got all the usual suspects that you would want for resources, all kinds of pet resources, not only pet, but wildlife, you know, it's just a how to, what to do, and how do I get kind of guide. And um, our animal protection officers carry this around as well, uh, to give to people or to refer to people. And um, our front desk obviously uses this a lot every single day. I really like the rehoming, the safe rehoming yourself, um, how to do things the right way safely we do make this available unbranded to people. I have a word document I can send out. Uh, a lot of it is specific to our area, which is great for our area, but we've got a lot of great national organizations and resources in there too. If, you know, looking at a PDF blows your mind, I can send you a, a word document that you can just cut and paste what you want out of it. Awesome. Okay. So let's talk about your threshold. So part of our written protocol are, you know, a general threshold and, we, we broke it down into uh, cats, dogs, and then dogs and cats, basically what all animals in the shelter. But it's not meant to be a, you know, black and white, hard and fast rule. It's always going to be fluid, right? And always dependent on like a case management approach, having conversations with people as they come in and finding out what they need. Um, because it's ne- even if they don't fit into any of these thresholds at, or if your shelter's at a certain capacity, It's all about that conversation. So we did these thresholds just because I wanted something in writing and visual because people can, you know, they process things differently so that we could have a protocol, have general guidelines. If somebody had to step into the shelter who doesn't know anything about this program, could they look at our protocol and understand where we were coming from, give them a guideline. And I really like these thresholds, but I can't really claim ownership of them. We learned about them in another Best Friends Town Hall uh, from Alexis Pugh and Memphis Animal Services. And so that's just um, just another testament to how much like we, we crowdsource and we resource grab from everybody and how awesome people are with about sharing everything that they have. Andy, if you could show the report daily report card, because I think this is something again, I think you saw this someplace else, but you do this every morning. Mm-hmm. to show everybody is it every morning for the day before I'm kind yeah, of sometimes yeah sometimes during the day sometime at some point yeah but it shows kind of what your status is in regards to how full you are right shows your intakes your outcomes and it's a very transparent to what's happening in your shelter yeah right and this is a we use chameleon we're lucky enough to have chameleon um and it is a report that can be auto-generated so you can create this report within chameleon. We do it every single day. um, And every month, you can do it monthly, and you can also do it annually. But we wanted our community to know exactly what we were doing, like what happened at the shelter. And 
if they have questions, we publish the dailies on our social media. We don't publish dailies on our website. We do monthly and annual. But if people have questions, we just engage with them on Facebook or mostly Facebook. Yeah, and I like it too because it shows other organizations that where we are at as far as capacity and we've got a, a lot of requests for help, you know, intake and animals, transferring in. I see you guys are, you know, it's just a, it's a good community building resource and it gives the, it, it takes away, I should say, it takes away some of the doubt or the, I don't want to say the, the naysayers. Cloud, right? Like everyone thinks it's a secret right. thing going on in the shelter when there really isn't. Right. And so like when you publish this, I mean, people can be skeptical and they, you know, it's fine. But once they ask questions and we engage, usually people say, oh, that's, I understand. So one last question before I go to Jill. So how did your staff feel about this program at first when you, and when you said, Hey, let's start this. Yeah. You know, I think the stuff was, um, <laughs> I say this word again, skeptical, but you know, and rightfully so. I, I think if you don't get pushback on something new or if nobody's asking questions, it, it kind of means that maybe they're not engaged or just not caring. I don't know, but I'm glad that they had questions and I'm glad that they, you know, this kind of, you know, made them take notice. But after all the conversations and trainings and, you know, the written protocol and the resource sharing, information sharing, they started realizing that by being able to coordinate some of our intake, like it meant that their jobs, not only their jobs got easier, but we were able to save more animals, right? They were not having to scramble for kennel space just because we took everything that came in, you know, right away with no questions asked, right? So historically speaking, I know, I know this, I was not there, but uh, multiple staff have told me that, you know, they've had to make really tough decisions in the past in order to, you know, make space. And they don't, they haven't had to do that at all in the past year, but especially since coordinated entry started. So I, I think it's just an expectation now and our community, I, you know, I get all the emails, I have access to the general inbox and before it used to be, um, I'm bringing my animal in or they would just show up at the door those kind of emails for owner surrender requests. But now, since we published this and we have it on our website, what the coordinated entry program is about, now it's the expectation is out there that, hey, hi, you know, I need to make an appointment. And how do I go about speaking with someone uh, to make an appointment? I need a surrender. After only six months, that's pretty good. It, it's pretty yeah. good. I, I, our community has been pretty incredible and really receptive to this. So um, one of the questions I'm being asked in the question box that I think might be important, I'm going to let Jill answer this one. And so what we're also going to do, just so everyone knows that's listening in, um, I want Jill to talk about her program, how it got started and so forth, because the Lynchburg Humane Society has a pretty well-established one. But I also am going to have them walk through what, it, what this program is so that you have an understanding of what they're, what they're referring to. And if someone calls in looking to, for help with their pet, like what are the steps? And the hope was that you, that you all can walk away from this with clear ideas on how to get a program started. So Jill, I'm gonna let you answer that. So what exactly is managed intake or coordinated entry? Like explain the, what it is. I should have done this to begin with, so I apologize. So our managed intake is actually a little bit different than um, what Michelle was talking about, but it started out exactly the same way. Um, and basically, you know, we are putting the um, responsibility sort of back on the pet owner and it allows us to um, basically 
not control what's in the shelter. So that's exactly what Michelle was saying. We're asking people to wait or we're asking people to take these resources. That's basically what managed intake is to us is we are controlling what comes in the shelter and when. So we don't have to euthanize for space. And it, it frees you up, right, to deal with the more critical situations because you are you're helping owners through rehoming or providing them the resources they need. Right. And so if we get in a hoarding case, we can certainly kind of stop intake a little bit or really slow it down um, as much as possible. And um, that is an open communication with the pet owners as to why we are doing that. Perfect. Okay. So when did Lynchburg start their managed intake? 2009, we had a new executive director that our, our facility never had an executive director. Um, we had a new executive director who brought uh, wonderful new ideas to Lynchburg um, from Charlottesville, Virginia, and from Richmond, Virginia, two of the places that she worked previously. So we had that in our toolbox. What I'm not telling you is that was McKenna Yarbrough. Um, she was our first executive director and she did start this program in Lynchburg. Um, so we've been doing it for a really long time now. Yeah, it's been a while. If you remember, I'm sure you do, because uh, you were around, maybe not in 2009, but you arrived in 2010, Jill. Right. And just so everyone knows, Jill has been running this program for the last, what's five, six years for Lynchburg Humane Society. So she's done a lot. And then we'll talk a little bit about how it's morphed and changed a little bit. But I'm curious if just describe, we weren't as, as we weren't as organized as Michelle was. <laughs> we weren't as organized as Michelle was. We weren't as sophisticated as Michelle was. We were in a um, very small, small, small building. Um, and we didn't have a lot of resources at the time. And we had almost no resources at the time because we just didn't. Um, none of this stuff was even thought of um, back in 2009 in Lynchburg, Virginia. And so we were literally just counseling people in our little tiny lobby. And that's that was the extent of it for the most part. We were using a Excel spreadsheet at the time, which actually we kind of still are. Um, using uh to to keep track of everybody um it was it was pretty primitive but it worked and it worked really quickly and so do you remember who the early critics were of this program most of the early critics to my recognition recollection was um other shelters so um area shelters around us who um were worried they were worried what was going to happen to them all the animals were going to go to them and the community was also worried that people would just dump their pets on the side of the road. So, um, and McKenna mentioned a minute ago that how, um, I think you'd mentioned maybe not stats and how important those are. And so we kept stats and we'll talk probably way more in depth on those in a little bit, but um, to prove to those naysayers and those people that were the critics that those things weren't true. And so we could really show that, that um, information. Okay. So, um, it's a long-standing program. Can you share what's changed over the years? Like what changes have you implemented and improvements have you made? The biggest improvements that we've made is gathering more and more and more resources and um, increasing our staff and our training of our staff and, you know, teaching our staff not to be judgmental and the way they speak and counsel to, to people. And what that has morphed over the years is a lot of resources that we are able to offer. I mean, we are able to offer so many resources. 
at least for people to to hang on to their pet long enough. But usually it's they hang on to their pet long enough to rehome them themselves safely. And um, that's what our program has actually morphed into. And we really only refer to it as our rehoming program at this point. And of course, we're going to take things in, in on emergencies, all of those things. But people actually call us now and they're not yelling at us about that. We're not taking their pet. They're saying, can you help me rehome my pet? So it's become a way of life in in our area. And they know. And it's also become um, very known in our extended community where um, we have people from other areas asking to bring their pets to us because they know they'll be safe and they're you know willing to go through that whole process. So you're not, so you, you're the, um, the Lynchburg Humane Society is the contracted humane organization in the public shelter for Lynchburg city. Right. Just so everyone knows. So we're, they're a contracted humane society. And then it sounds like to me, so if someone lived three counties away, you all would take that owner surrender in as long as they're willing to wait. Is that how it works? Yes. And we're also willing to offer them those, res- those same resources. Um, we're willing to you know, help them rehome. We're willing to take that pet in if it's an emergency. Okay. So let's, you both have talked about stats, right? So let's just jump into stats real fast. Michelle, what are the stats that you actually keep? Like, what are you tracking? Uh, well, this, the data that we're we're tracking, like how many animals were requested owner in, uh, owner surrender, um, how many ended up at the shelter, how many were mitigated, that kind of data we're definitely keeping. But we're also, you know, Jill talked about an Excel spreadsheet, and Lynchburg actually helped us with our Excel spreadsheet. We track. Um, everything and we keep all the requests that we get in you know what the situation was you know animal info owner info the resources that were provided uh what happened on like the four-day follow-up because we don't just set an appointment and like set them off into the wild you know we check in with them midpoint and it's typically about a week out what the results were well jill um i know that i know what you track because because you created it (laughs) Hate to say it like that, but I'm curious. I mean, you've been doing it for 10 years. What are like, what are the stats showing us? Like, what are, what are you all seeing as trends um, in regards to the amount of animals that are being rehomed or kept or. Right. It's, we have consistently seen a growth in the amount of animals that are either kept or rehomed straight from their home and don't enter the shelter. Um, And we do kind of obviously kind of the same thing that Michelle does as far as um, what we keep track of. But in 2020, we saw over half of the the pets that came, the the owners that came to us, over half of those pets were either kept or rehomed. So that's that's cutting our intake down by 50% if you look at it that way as far as owner surrenders go. Um, which makes a huge difference. And throughout the years, um, since 2009, it's just steadily increased. And, and, you know, this year we have a a goal of of 60%. So we're going to keep on trying to increase that in any way we can. And we learn so much from those stats that we review every month, every day sometimes. Um, And we keep those those same types of information that that Michelle just mentioned. Um, And one of the most important things that I think that we keep that um, has helped us a lot is how many times that we have contacted that person. We literally keep track of every single message, like 
we left the message. We, you know, talked to these people and we offered them this and here's how it's going right now. And another really important thing that we keep is how many of those pets ended up at other shelters. So we know that information. We know that that's not really harming the the other shelters. And uh, that's that's an extremely um, good stat to keep as well. That's good. And do you all, um, have you all seen an increase in abandonment at the shelter? Like the, the myth is that people will start leaving animals at your shelter if you're not taking them in right away, or they'll you know, let them loose in the streets. Right. Just like everyone else, we'll see, uh, you know, occasionally abandonment at our shelter, but it has not increased um, at all. If anything, I think it has decreased. Um, And then we also saw the other shelters, um, especially when we very first started this program, we saw the other shelters um, intakes go down as far as strays go, because that was definitely one of the things that we worried about was, you know, people are just going to let their animals go. Um, and we did not see an increase in strays. What about you, Michelle? Well, we are, you know, six months in, so um, still growing the program. We, our data isn't as cool as 50% intake, but um, we've got about, of all of our, um, all of our intakes combined, we've mitigated about 7% um, of the total shelter intake. And for owner surrenders, it's right about 40%. So all the owner surrender requests, 40% are being uh, rehomed by their owners. So we will continue to try and improve on that. But we actually, like in the last six months, we haven't had any animals abandoned at the shelter. So that's, we're we're a zero for zero right now. Uh, Hopefully that continues. But, you know, if it does happen, we will have to just, you know, case management approach, look at what happened, why it happened, how it happened, and like do better. Like we're always looking for ways to improve and, you know, it's okay to have mishaps and mistakes along the way, as long as you take steps to improve your process. So real quick, I want to go through exactly what is the process. So I'm someone who has a puppy that has just chewed up my shoe for the last time and I'm very frustrated and I don't know what to do. And I call Michelle. (laughs) <laughs> uh, okay uh, well i the, i will talk to you know those non-emergency non-exigent circumstance calls right so the, those animals are always coming in immediately but the ones where the owners are able to hang on to the, their own animals safely it's really we don't make it we don't put the owner surrender uh, appointment requests on our website we don't make it available for people to just go ahead and click that button and, you know, no mess, no have to make, make contact with us. We, we really want that conversation to understand the situation and dependent on the situation and what our threshold is at the capacity at the shelter is we will schedule out typically one to two weeks with an appointment. So nobody leaves without an appointment. But in the meantime, they are sent home with the resources that, you know, the whole resource guide, but really highlighted what their issue is with the animal, right? With having, keeping their own animal are, you know, the conversation goes like, do you actually, we're trying to find out what the problem is and can we help you with it so that you can keep your animal? A lot of people come to us already devastated. We've all seen the emotions like running high in the front lobby because they've already, they think that that is the only thing. That's the only way that they are able to save their animal because it needs X, Y, Z, or, you know, they're not able to afford it because of X, Y, Z. So really having those conversations and figuring out what the actual issue is. 
uh, resources can be provided. And a lot of times people say, okay, well, I'm going to try this or thank you for the resources, you know, tangible resources that we can give them at the time. And they, they go home with their animal without an appointment. Those who are still adamant about having an appointment, we send them with the resource guide and how to rehome themselves safely. And we check in with them at about four days after the appointment is made and then midpoint again, at, at, just to check in, hey, have you been able to do what, you know, rehome your animal or how's it going? What can we help with? And so it's just, it's constant check-ins like Jill mentioned, and we record all of the, the, the interactions and all of the conversations um, because it's good data for us to have to so that we can improve. And it's also, you track those things because when people um, want to criticize your program, you can say, hey, this is exactly what happened. Always be keeping that data so you can look back on it. Jill, what's different about your program than Michelle's? Our program has morphed into um, basically most of it's online at this point. So I'll be honest. And I know a lot of everyone listening that is working in a shelter, you don't have time to answer phones. I mean, and you don't have the staff to provide for that. And um, we've just kind of resolved that that's just the way it's going to be. And we have decided to make it more automated and easier for, I don't want to say easier, but for the, the pet owner, But we've also found that by doing that, it gives them a chance to reflect on what they're doing. And it's not a knee jerk reaction, like McKenna's example of my puppy just chewed up my shoe for the third time and I'm sick of it. So those are a lot of, there are a lot of knee jerk reactions. just like, I'm just done. I can't do this anymore. And it has worked in a, in an interesting way by making it more automated people in any almost, um, when you say automated, they go on the website and there's yeah. a simple form for them to fill out some basic information, some right? Basic information. So that's what happens with us. So we have um, on our website, all the resources that we have available. And obviously we have some more that, you know, just depending on their specific problem, they can read through that. They can read through um, a lot of different behavior issues. It's a whole resource page. And then there's a form that says, okay, I need to rehome my pet and um, there's a form that they fill out. And the same form is we use for rehomes and surrenders. So we gather all of that information that we need. And then we reach out to them. Um, have that conversation. And have that conversation with them. And it's usually via email. And we do find that people um, don't have as much, the emotion is lower with the email. So, cause you give somebody a chance to kind of calm down a little bit and not be so emotional as Michelle had mentioned. And, um, you know, if we need to have a phone conversation, that's perfectly fine. And of course we do get walk-ins as well, but that's basically where we refer them is to our website to fill out this form that gives a lot of information about their issue, their pet, what their problem is so that we are ready at that particular moment when we reach out to them to say, here are our resources that we can offer you. And then we can also call them immediately and say, you need to bring your pet in right away. I understand that this is a huge problem because it's biting your child. The automated process has just been just very helpful in that regard. One of the questions I think I'm hearing is what kind of um, like software systems are you all using? And so we'll start with that. Like how, how do you set up an appointment, Michelle? Uh, we utilize uh, wait while it's, I know we have the paid version. It's very affordable. I, I could be lying, but it may be like 60 bucks a year. I mean, sorry, a month. Um, maybe I could be lying about That's that. Sorry. 
I said, I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it wasn't a significant amount where we had to go through, you know, putting out a bid or anything. So uh, we got wait while, and so people can schedule on that. That's how we schedule people to come in, and we can also see who's coming in. Um, so that we don't over schedule for that day. You know, we have certain amounts uh, allowed on X days. We typically schedule our surrenders to come in. Uh, we don't have an on staff veterinarian. So we schedule them the day of or the day before our veterinarian is going to do rounds. So we can make sure that if we do have anything pop up overnight that they get seen in the morning. And of course, if they have issues when they come in, they get sent to a, a emergency veterinarian. But yeah, so wait while, and then we use Chameleon for our shelter software at, at database, and then also um, just Microsoft Office Suite. So we use like Excel. If we had Google, it would be like Google Docs. Okay. And um, Jill, what are you all using? We actually just use um, Google Calendar, which we have for years and years and years, and it works well for us. We do use wait well for other reasons, but um, we've stuck with Google Calendar for um for our appointments. And I did want to point out that um, we don't give appointments right away, usually, unless it's like I said, emergency or, or it has a, a, a deadline on it. We uh, put them on our VIP list, which is a very important pet list. And it's just a very nice way of saying our waiting list. That's probably the big difference between Norfolk and, and Lynchburg Humane Society is that we, we don't typically make appointments unless we feel like that is necessary or that helps the pet owner really um, feel like they have a, an end result. Some yeah, people. Jill, that is a really good comparison. And I will say that part of my vision of the program has been guided by what my um, city officials thought about it as well. So it's really important to get their buy-in and, the, and their support. And part of that process with them is that they really wanted, uh, they didn't want people walking away without an appointment. So is that, I? it's not the ideal version that we envisioned, but it was a small compromise. And I think compromise is really good um, when it comes to being able to get things done, right? If, if some, if that is the, the thing that's going to prevent you from implementing a new program, then, but it's really important to be able to compromise and get that's a really that good done. point. Yeah. 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 No, I like that actually. Okay. We're all in different situations. Sorry, McKenna. We're no, all no. in different situations and um, different types of organizations. And, and that makes total sense as far as, you know, you have uh, city officials to answer to and um, you need to, to, to make those compromises. And if that's the only way you can do it, that's a great step in the right direction. Yeah. Okay, so I do have some questions here that I want to pop up. One is, there is real stigma to having uneducated people rehome their own pets for fear of uh, the pet's welfare. How is that working statistically? Anybody want to jump on that one? I'll jump on that one just because we have a very comprehensive sort of rehoming guide that you can find on our website that goes through the entire rehoming process and how to do it and, and um, why you should do it and how you should do it, all of those things, every single step. And it makes it very safe and easy for the pet owner. But we have found that also the, the people that come to us, and I think that this is the case for most shelters, when they come to us and they want, sorry, my dog's trying to get in, um, and they want to surrender their pet, they're not necessarily looking for that really quick way of rehoming their pet if they're really into that. They are, otherwise they would have done it on Facebook or Craigslist without even contacting us. So we just educate, we educate, educate, educate on how to do it properly. 
No, oh, I would have to say like that whole, the question is a really good question, but also I would like to challenge people to uh, like broaden the way of thinking that, you know, people aren't uneducated. It is our jobs to help them understand as subject matter experts and not to judge them uh, and or dismiss them that they are not capable of doing something. They are reaching out to us for help because they care about their animal and they've kept their animal alive and they love them enough to reach out for help. So I think it's very reasonable to give them the benefit of the doubt and help them rehome the animal that they have already loved up until that point. So it just, it's more about inclusivity and being open to people, not having the same types of, you know, expertise as we have, but providing resources that would guide them through that process. Yeah. And I'd like to add to that. Um, you know, it, it, to touch on something Michelle said is that we really do need to trust people because most people are good. I learned that from somebody that's sitting on this panel right now <laughs> that might be hosting this um, is that we need to we need to trust people because most people are good. And we only remember those bad things that happen. And, you know, we we get animals that are abandoned all the time. Well, really, we only got three this year, but we only remember those things. So we just need to keep that in mind as we go and 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 pursue this type of program. Last thing, but also just re elaborating on that, like, what are we afraid of, right? Have cruelty cases gone up? Have neglect cases gone up? Because all of a sudden people are rehoming their animals. You know, we know that there are myths and talking about stigmas about uh, certain websites and rehoming. And one time a dog got rehomed on X websites and then it ended up in a dog fighting ring. I mean, what are the actual stats on that happening? I'm talking about actual data when you work with animal protection or animal control on cruelty cases or dog fighting rings, every community is different. I will say that. And every community has different and similar challenges. So it's really about what's best for your community. And if you have a lot of dog fighting concerns, actual concerns where you have cases through animal protection or animal cruelty, then that's a different discussion, but it's typically not the norm to have those types of high level concerns of people rehoming their own animals. Do you charge for intake? We do charge for intake again, case by case basis. Yeah. So if we need to waive that fee, we will, there is, um, you know, we do charge for intake on litters of puppies on individual animals, all of those things. We do have a little discount. So they're not paying six different intake fees um, for a litter of puppies or kittens or whatever mm -hmm. it might be. Um, but we do that again, that is a case by case basis. Um, as most things are in our industry, I feel like, or need to be, um, based on the situation and the need and the, and the safety of the pet, all of those things. So what do you do if an owner doesn't want to participate in the, uh, owner surrender process and walks away threatening to dump the dog or cat? Oh, I love that question. So what we usually do and if, okay, so it, there's a couple different scenarios to this that we probably all experienced. One is I'm just going to dump it on the side of the road and we call them out on that. No, you're not. You're, you're really not going to do that. And, and, and because they've come to us for help. So obviously they do care about this pet nine times out of 10 they're they calm down and they say, you're right. I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I just am very frustrated right now. And that's fine. There are also the, I'm going to harm this pet. I'm going to take it out and shoot it. Um, and we do get those. Um, when we get those, we do take the pet in. So if we think the pet is in danger, we're going to take it in. Michelle, do you have any, anything to add to that? 
Well, I just want to remind everybody, and I, I think Jill, she said it earlier, is that the people who are reaching out for help aren't the ones we need to be as animal services professionals or animal control officers or animal protection. That Those aren't the people that we should be, we need to be concerned with them, but we shouldn't be worried about them harming their own animals. Uh, and having some uh, escalation, de-escalation, you know, training just to kind of calm people down by meeting them where they're at and having that conversation. And they're not the people who are going to go out and hurt their animals. And if they are truly unhinged, take the animal. There's nothing just because you have a coordinated entry program, you have it written down, doesn't mean that it's a hard and fast rule. Like our protocols are all gray area. Uh, That's why we didn't write them into like official city SOPs because our SOPs, we actually only have two SOPs. It's a euthanasia SOP and it's a cash handling SOP. Those are the ones that we follow. The protocols are meant to be living documents that we um, are able to, you know, amend and change as needed. And, you know, we don't have to stick to it exactly. The one thing I always tell organizations when they're setting up a managed intake program is to make sure, first off, do you have staff members running this program who are high customer service oriented individuals that are able to be trained properly on how to deal with difficult customers and you get them that training before they actually start doing the work. When we first started in Lynchburg, we had the wrong person on the phones and I knew it, we all knew it. And we immediately made the change um, after a few days, we realized that person wasn't the person to do the job, but we also made sure that the rest of the staff was trained. So anybody who answered the phone could actually deal with that person and they were empowered. That's the other part of this. I feel like it sounds like both of you have done, like your staff is empowered to make those on the spot decisions to bring in that animal and to, to deal with different situations. So they're not having to run to their supervisor every single time they want to make an exception. Yeah. I I have to say that um, that's one of the biggest things that we do with our staff is empower them no matter what department they're in, but especially in that department. And I can't even tell you the last time someone came to me and said, can I take this animal? We, they're trained, they know what they're doing and um, they feel trusted and empowered to do, to make those decisions. And nine times out of 10, I would never disagree with them. Like they, they did the right thing. So giving someone that power to someone that you trust and have trained, it, it, you don't have to worry about it. It, it just comes naturally. Yeah, you'll never, get, uh, you'll never get in trouble for doing the right thing for the animal, period. We will be doing more around the return to quote unquote normal over the coming weeks because it's not just about flipping a switch, is it? There's a lot to this, so we'll be taking a look at some different communities and organizations. What are they doing that will hopefully help you during this time of transition? The producers of the podcast, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and thank you for listening to the Best Friends Podcast.